Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Today on the podcast, Daniel Sivan. Daniel is an award-winning director who's the co-director of the new Netflix series, The Devil Next Door. It's a five-part documentary. It delves into the legal battles of John Dumanjuk, a retired auto worker in Cleveland accused of being a German Nazi prison camp guard known as Ivan the Terrible. I was riveted by this series. I highly recommend you watch it if you haven't seen it. Daniel and I talk about what drew him and his directing partner to the material, what stuff didn't make it into the series, and whether he thinks, after everything he's seen and heard, if ultimately Dumanjuk is indeed Ivan the Terrible. Okay, so I'm here with Daniel Sivan. Very, very happy to be at your very temporary home in Santa Monica. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm happy, happy to be here. Um, I realized we're, I got an incredible window. I reached out to Daniel after I saw this incredible series and assumed it would be a remote interview. And he said, I'm actually here in Santa Monica for, you know, one more week. So when I walked in, I realized they literally are moving back to Israel in two days, right? Yeah, yeah, on Friday. (laughs) Yeah. So you were saying, so you came here to edit the doc, essentially for Netflix, right? Yeah, yeah. We It was quite a move, moving uh, with my wife and kids. Um, and like, you know, when they came here, they didn't know one word of English. So it was, you know, diving into the deep water. And, uh, and L.A. is a whole different language. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's not so. even regular English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but it, apparently they had a fantastic time. They don't want to leave. So. Right. Well, <laughs> Israel's a, Tel Aviv's a lot like L.A., actually. It's nothing <laughs> like LA. <laughs> okay, maybe only people who live here say that, not people from there. But you do notice we have a lot of Israelis in LA. Yes, yes, you do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so I want to just set the stage. Um, obviously, I have a million questions. As I told you when I reached out to you, I was blown away. I thought this was one of the best docu series I've ever seen. It was, you know, I'm old enough to have. Probably, you know, been a child when all this, sorry, not, not even, I was a young adult, very, very young adult when all this happened. Actually, I was in Israel for the year. Um, I went, I lived in uh, Israel, my junior year of college, literally two years after this trial, but for some reason it was a vague memory, but I really didn't know the story. So I think, you know, for those of us like me who really went in blind, it was incredibly revelatory, so well done. So first of all, just thank you for making such an important piece of work. Uh, thank you for the compliments. <laughs> yeah. So let me just set the stage. And then, of course, I have, um, you know, questions. So um, the docuseries, and I'm going to assume, I'm sort of going to play it down the middle for people that have seen it who haven't seen it. It's always hard when I interview directors because I always want them, you know, I kind of want to keep the suspense, but it's also so much is out there that, you know, I always say kind of pause and go watch it and come back and listen, right? It's hard, right? Because you don't want to... You go ahead and yeah, spoil it. I'm just going to... I'm going to walk the line as much as... Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> but everyone should see it. It is It is must-see. It is must-see. Um, so it's a story of John Demanchuk. He, just in a nutshell, was born in the Ukraine. He uh, was uh, dre- went to fight with the Soviets during World War II and then ultimately was captured by the Nazis. And then kind of what happened after that is becomes the subject of this doc and, and what happens afterwards. Let's just fast forward for a moment to after the war. Um, he moves with, to the U.S., to the Midwest in Cleveland, Ohio, becomes an employee at Ford, has a few kids, and life is sort of going on as normal until 
he shows up as somebody who they believe is a man they call Ivan the Terrible, a Nazi war criminal from Treblinka, and is extradited to Israel. And this all sort of happens very quickly in the first episode. Um, did I mess up any of the facts, first of all? I feel like I may have. No, no, it's it's good. Okay. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> and I did see this like a month ago, so I'm working off a little bit of research too. So once he... So talk about... Um, so, so the rest of the series is, inc- so it was nationally televised trial. Um, and the whole issue is, you know, is this man the same man that was considered Ivan the Terrible? And they um, have lots of testimony from survivors that is incredibly compelling and very dramatic. There's lots of archival footage of concentration camps, extremely graphic, very hard to look at and see, but so necessary. And it's sort of this mystery and also like a courtroom thriller for lack of a better way to describe it that has some interesting twists and turns and we'll get into some of that. But now that everyone sort of knows what this is about, um, what is it that drew you and Yossi, your co-director, Yossi Block, to the material and how did you even begin to tackle this? And it's because it is really a bear in terms of, you know, the amount of archival, the amount of footage, finding all of the surviving characters of which there were a lot and getting them to agree. Like what was, what even made you want to do it in the first place? Well, first of all, I think it's, it's really such a radical story, such an extreme story. I mean, this is not a man that was a petty thief for a convict and then they came and blamed him for being a murderer. John Demianiuk in Cleveland was like the, the symbol of the American dream. You know, he had this picket fence house in this nice neighborhood, had a good job in the Ford plant. Um, back then, you know, you could work at the Ford plant and send your kids to college while you were, you know, shoving metal um, and, and being really like it was a bloom of like the blue collar, um, you know, workers. And one day he has these guys knocking on his door and they're not accusing him of being a Nazi collaborator or even being a murderer. They, they accuse him of being the worst Nazi in history. Like you have Hitler and probably this uh, Ivan the Terrible character was number two. And what was and, Ivan the Terrible? No, why was he the worst? So this is a man that, you know, by the stories and testimonies told about him, First of all, he was in charge of basically single-handedly killing almost a million people. And he did that in a very, very sadistic, almost mythological way. Like you hear about this man going around World War II with a spear. Um, and you, you know, my first question was like, wh- where did he get a spear in World War II? Like that was not part of, you know, the standard issue of w- what soldiers got. Um, so you have this real monster and he's accused of being that monster. And unlike Eichmann and other Nazis, he did not say, oh, I was just a cog in the machine. I was just following orders. Uh, I, I did my small part, but I didn't do that. He just says, never was there. It's not me. I just look like the guy. I'm not even admitting he ever took part in anything. Um, And as they say in the show, that's where the drama begins. Because the big question is, is this like the 
biggest mistrial in history, this showcase taking this innocent man um, and making it him into a scapegoat just you know to to satisfy our very human need of taking revenge on on the monster or is it this story about the biggest monster of all times which uh, I won't spoil the ending but it's surprising <laughs> yeah it is I know I'm gonna bite my tongue as well so when you were I'm assuming you're on the younger side I can't really gauge your age you have one of those faces yeah. it could go either way I am 57. Yeah, no, you're not. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> so that I will not believe. Yeah, I'm, I'm 36. That looks about right. So you didn't really know about this. Um, so no, I mean, me growing up in Israel, um, for me, the trial of Demianiuk was considered this kind of like, it, it's almost like, you know, an, an anecdote in history, like some kind of like fun fact that some people know and some people don't know. It can basically be used as some kind of trivia contest. Um, and like we were brought up on like, there is one big Nazi trial, which is Eichmann trial. Um, and Demianiuk was like, something went wrong not very sure what went wrong, but that was it. So it's not taught at schools. It's not part of our schooling system at all. Um, and Yossi, which is a bit older than me, he's 37. Um, <laughs> he remembers it perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, he, he was, uh, I, w- I won't tell you his age, but he was old enough to come back from school every day and see it because back then in the 80s, Israel had one channel. <laughs> right. <laughs> so just imagine this one channel that like the whole country is in tune that like back then like you Americans you don't get it but like back then in the 80s it was do you want to watch TV yes or no it's (laughs) no question about what's on different channels you see the one thing and the one thing that's broadcast is four hours a day of this just live footage from the trial and when the footage is over and when the broadcast is over then you have experts um, in the in the news you know talking about it dissecting it you have interviews of people off the street so it was like almost for one year that was our only topic in Israel and Yossi would go back to school just obsessing about it because you know he was hearing these testimonies which you know, when I grew up, you know, hearing testimonies of Holocaust survivors and I've been to the, the camps and when I was in high school, but I never heard such devastating testimonies. Um, we even had to tone it down a bit because it was so gory. It wow. was almost too hard to bear. Um, so, you know, for me, I didn't know much about the trial, but Yossi was obsessing about it for years and he dreamt to do something about it. And when he approached me, he said like, you know, I really want to do something about this trial because I read Joram Scheftel's book, um, which of course <laughs> calls this whole trial a big show trial. Um, and just to clarify who he is, he ended up being the Israeli lawyer that defended John. John Demianiuk, yeah, and today he is this radio star in Israel. And wow, and ex- I didn't know that. He's the he's like the king of the extreme right wing in Israel. Yeah, and um, he is as obnoxious as he was back then. <laughs> yeah. um, we have some of those here. Yeah, <laughs> um, but we're a great character for a duck. I mean, he's you know, amazing. He's, he's amazing. You he's, can't you can't make that up. 
Oh, no. And even if you try, it's like, <laughs> right. he's, he's amazing. And um, nobody would defend Demandjuk. I mean, he was the only guy who would touch this. Yeah. Like they went around for like six months looking for an Israeli lawyer just to help like translate for the American lawyer. Like what's the system here? Because in Israel, you have to understand you have three judges, you have no jury you don't talk to the jury. They kept telling O'Connor, the, the <laughs> lawyer, like, you know, you, you really have to face us, like stop facing the audience. Like, you know, you're They're not just, the jury. No. Um, so he needed some help and like no Israeli lawyer would take it. Like for all of them, it was like, you know, I believe in the legal system and like everybody needs some defense, but like, I don't know, defending like the worst monster in history, like no thanks. Um, <laughs> and it was not like Eichmann saying like, you know, I do not, uh, uh, you know, accept this court or something. He was really there in order to fight the legal case saying like, look, I have no denial of the Holocaust. You people have been through tremendous suffering all I have for you is empathy, but it's just not me. Um, and Yom Schefter was looking at that case um, and he was already a very young lawyer, but he was already like as controversial as you can imagine. Like he, his previous uh, client was Mayor Lansky, the Jewish the mobster. mobster. Yeah. And he was fighting to get Mayor Lansky his uh, Israeli citizenship when he tried to escape the US. So that was like, really a man that thrives on notoriety and of, you know, being as, as controversial as you can. And he picks up this case and really says, okay, like, you know, they have no evidence. Like all this evidence is one big piece of like sentimental crap. And he's looking at it and he's saying like, this is actually not him. Um, well, that's, <laughs> I won't and, ruin the show. <laughs> again, right. That's the whole thing. So back to sort of the evolution of how you guys came together. So you and Yossi had worked together. You're both documentarians. You had worked together on another film 10 years ago, right? Yeah. And then, so he and, came to you, like how long ago did he come to you with this idea of so doing this? It was almost four years ago. Okay. Um, and he came to me and said like, okay, so we need to do it. Um, now it wasn't like, you know, uh, <laughs> um, a very rare situation. Like once a week he would come to me and say, like, I have a great idea, we should do it. Um, some of them were really great ideas. Some of them were awful. Um, this one sounded really boring. Like I told him, like, you know, we Israelis, we have a problem. You know, we, we don't allow any footage, audio, anything to come into the courtroom. So you can't have like, you know, a masterpiece like OJ versus, uh, it's not OJ versus America, it's... Um, People versus OJ. No, it's uh, OJ made in America. Oh, right. Sorry. Got it. Uh, the 10 parter. Yeah. So I told him like, you know... <laughs> no way you can do that because it's so boring to hear like people talk about the courtroom and then you cut to like, you know, this outside building and like, what do you see? Um, and Yossi was telling me, no, like this was broadcast. Like I, I would watch it. And I was like, you know, you were young. You probably like, you know, filled in the details. Um, you know, little did I know that like the whole show is going to be about memory and how people fill in yeah. the details. But um, <laughs> I told him like, you know, get me one tape. Like I want to see it because I just don't believe you. And then he went on this search to find these tapes and he came back with this Umatic tape. Now, Umatic is the worst 
format of video on earth <laughs> it's i've never even heard of it it's called like that like the the one of the very early stage three quarter inch i remember three quarter uh, inch yeah yeah and the thing about it it's a videotape which is not built to last so like you have better cams from the 90s that are beautifully preserved right and then you have this humatic tape <laughs> now this humatic tape basically unlike like audio tapes which are amazing um they just start rotting and they just start extracting this kind of green fungus thingy Ew. and all the tape gets like stuck together and it all merges into just just one big blob <laughs> and in order to actually like you know extract something from them you have to put them for three days in a special oven and just bake them. How'd you like, know that? Oh, <laughs> we had a master <laughs> of restoration just, wow. you know, crying week after week. We would tell him like, you know, we have these 900 tapes and he was like, they're in the oven, they're baking. So, <laughs> uh, so they would bake for like a week and then you start restoring them and digitizing them. And like, then Yossi finally came back with this one tape and I was watching it and I was just like, I was fixated. It, it was just the craziest thing I ever saw. And, you know, from that moment, I told him like, you know, we have a show here. When you realized that there were, you know, hundreds of hours, I don't, I don't actually know the amount, but I'm assuming it was a lot. It's 900 hours of court footage. Wow, yeah. 900 hours. Okay, wait. All right. That's when, a lot. That's yeah. a lot. And did you personally look at every minute or did you have archivists that did everything like how do you look at 900 hours of footage well um luckily enough i had yossi <laughs> <laughs> who and really wanted to rewatch it oh yossi was obsessed i mean wow. he was watching it like 50 times oh and you know half of it is in ukrainian and russian and yiddish and you need to wait for the translators to just get back to you. And it's like recorded awfully. Um, and Yossi was just like going over the tapes for like a year, just like listening to these trials. Um, and I got like the easy part, just telling him like, Yossi, like, you know, <laughs> give me an interesting part yeah. where Borax talks about something and <laughs> right. he would just pull them. Uh, until wow. now, like you, you can wake him up in the middle of the night and just say like, you know, where did they talk about the Machenko file? And he's right. like, tape 53A. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He's an encyclopedic knowledge of this trial. That's crazy. So at that point, did you know because of the volume of what you had that it was going to be a documentary series and not, you know, a one-off type of situation? Yeah, I mean, like from day one, it was like this is just uh, just the magnitude of years that it was going by. And like, you know, some of the twists we have in the show uh, would last a, <laughs> when you look at like this genre of true crime, like we have some twists that, you know, would last like two seasons <laughs> in a regular show. Right. And here they last like 15 minutes. So like, yeah. you know, one of these crazy stories is a story about Sheftel, uh, his lawyer, after uh, Demianiuk is found guilty in the first uh, trial. Um, he sets off and looks for um, somebody that can help him with the appeal. And, you know, he vows to uh, save Demianiuk from the hangman. And like nobody at that time is taking Sheftel seriously. Uh, and he finds this ex-judge. 
and this ex-judge, um, which is this really humanitarian, very, very moral man, um, he starts walking with Sheftel because he says, like, you know, think what I may about uh, John Demianiuk's guilt. Like, I saw the trial was very biased and they were very, very, um, you know, aggressive towards his defense and definitely towards Sheftel. They hated him. Um, and they start walking on the trial together. And one day before the appeal, or three days before the appeal, um, the judge, Dove Tan, which is walking with Sheftel, uh, commits suicide. And he is assumed to be pushed from the roof, or maybe he jumped from the roof. And you have all these series. One of them is about um, people trying to, um, sorry, uh, <laughs> about people trying to blackmail him, telling him we will out you as homosexual right. if you uh, won't drop this case. Another is people just like really terrifying him, sending him bullets to his home. Um, and you have this growing conscience of this lawyer, which his late wife said that like, he probably understood that, like, you know, Demianuk did something very wrong and he was conflicted within himself. Um, and he jumps to his death from the tallest building um, in Jerusalem. And, you know, what, what follows is his funeral in which Sheftel is attacked and has acid thrown on his face, uh, losing his eye uh, to this Holocaust survivor that vows to take revenge on the demons that, you know, defended Demianiuk. So, like, that kind of twist would usually, like, last, like, I don't know, five episodes in yeah. a true crime. Yeah. Like, and here we had to tell it, like, in 10 minutes because it, here we have so much. So, like, yeah. from day one, we said, you know, this is an epic show. It can't be just told in, like, a one part. Right. And it's interesting that you say that because I think it does move so fast and there are so many incredible twists and turns. I mean, you just highlighted one incredible one. But at the same time, you know, I wonder if that's why it works so well is that it's not sort of dragged out, you know, to 10. Because sometimes like making a murderer, not to out. And I mean, I happen to think it was a good solid series, but it was too long. So it's it's hard to find that balance. I think that I don't know. I thought it was kind of the perfect amount, even though, of course, like the perfect series, it ends, it, you end up wanting more um, at the end because there's just so much more, you know, just in terms of wanting to dig deeper. Yeah. So for us, I mean, it was clear, you know, throughout the writing of the script and then the initial editing that, you know, we don't want to drag it out. And on the other hand, you know, we shed so many tears, um, you know, just taking out the these you had crazy yeah. stories. Um, and there was so much. And like we kept like joking about like, you know, oh, that will go to like episode eight. That will go to episode can you nine. Give, can you give one quick story that you hated to, to leave out? Oh, we had this one just insane twist of this female survivor um, and there were rumors about her not agreeing to testify in the courtroom because she actually ID'd, um, identified uh, John Demianiuk as Ivan the Terrible. But what she said is when I was um, a 12-year-old girl in the camp, this Ivan the Terrible monster actually saved my life. 
So he was actually, they had this kind of loving relationship. I don't know if it was a love affair or it was just, you know, this one moment of grace, but he would like sneak food to her. Um, and, you know, while he was like kissing her, he would like sneak food to her. And he, she basically said like, this man saved my life Um, I cannot point at him. Now, you know, this is like the story that is just like so crazy. And so she so, testified in the trial. She wouldn't. Oh, she wouldn't. Okay. She wouldn't point at him and say it's him because wow. she said, I, I can't send him to the gallows. Now, of course, like anything and everything in this trial, the minute you raise it, it's going to be disputed like from 50 different sources. Right, and people right. are going to say, oh, no, let me tell you why she's lying. And then somebody else will say, no, she's not lying. Here's, and it will just go on into another five episodes. So we had just so many stories like that, which was said, like, how can we give it up? Um, so I'm waiting for somebody to you know, pick up the, the glove and to do a second series of uh, the untold truth, but it won't be me and your series. No, you're <laughs> because done. Because we are done. You are done. That's a lot. So when you went into this... Oh, and uh, uh, just one thing that is important to remember, and that's like, I think that's the biggest obsession about this show for us, is that you keep wondering, like, you know, will I get this golden proof? Will I get this, this one more shred of evidence? Like the story I just told you about that lady, and you say, okay, like, that's the proof. But when you start digging into that, like, that's also disputed. And this constant search about, like, the one answer, the one, you know, golden piece of, you know, DNA, you know, that will prove it all and will just give us this finally, you know, some peace. That will never happen. And that will never happen because it is a Holocaust and because we are talking about something that is unexplainable and unperceivable. And I think that this frustration about there is no answer is exactly the message that we were aiming at. Which is? You, you can't just, you know, slay the monster. First of all, because there were many monsters. And these monsters, some of them were bad human beings. Some of them were just opportunistic collaborators. You don't have this, you know, one devil that you can slay and say, okay, we brought back the order to, you know, our lives and it will never happen again because it's happening again each and every day, um, not to Jews, also to Jews. Um, you know, around the US you have, you know, constantly these anti-Semitic attacks. But if you look outside the Jewish community, you have attacks against gays, against lesbians, against bisexual and transgenders, and of course against every prosecuted um, community and people throughout the globe. Um, and you can't have this one monster that you slay. Like, you know, if you're looking at the US, you know, you, you slayed Bin Laden, you slayed um, Saddam Hussein, and like nothing happened. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. But you're right, what you said at the beginning, which is that need for revenge is so strong. It's, you know, it's tangible. We, we understand that, especially as Jews, right? So, um, when you went in, look, I know the number one question, right, is, is he really, do you really think he's Ivan the Terrible? So I guess 
I, my question is more when you went into this, when you started, when you first started talking about it versus where you are now and having put, put the whole series together, you know, I guess it's a two parter. Like what does your gut say? Do you think that he really is Ivan the terrible? And two, like you said, does it matter? Yeah, so <laughs> of course it matters. It matters to us. We were obsessed about it. Um, I constantly had the feeling that he was Ivan the Terrible, but it's based on absolutely nothing. <laughs> I mean, th- that's the beauty of, you know, being a filmmaker. You know, I can say my gut tells me so, um, or that's my feeling, but it doesn't mean anything in court. And very, you know, I'm happy it doesn't because we shouldn't send people to the gallows based on somebody's gut feeling. For me, you know, as Daniel, not responsible or in charge of anything and not somebody you need to listen to. For me, you know, it's just very hard not to listen to the survivors because we did not have the survivors on one side and anybody on the other side. We had just the survivors. And John Demianiuk never admitted to anything. I mean, yes, you can say that's part of his defense, but he did not say, oh, I was not in Treblinka, I was in Sobivor, I was not Ivan the Terrible, I was a cook. He did not say anything. For him, he had zero alibi. He just said, I wasn't there, I don't know, I was never anywhere, I didn't take part in anything, I was just a prisoner of war, which was disputed a million times. Yeah, that's why I guess, just to clarify my second question, does it matter? Of course, it matters. What I meant was, you know, even if you think, if your gut tells you maybe that it's 85% Ivan the Terrible, I mean, in my mind, he's 100% a Nazi war criminal. So whether he was exactly that man or whether he eventually, as he, you know, got tried for, um, committed, you know, hundreds of thousands of deaths, that's still despicable, obviously, beyond Yeah, I words. mean, it's, you know, it, it, it's pretty daunting, like, when you think about it, because, like, it, it's almost like you have a spectrum of, like, like, a scale of colors on your TV or audio. And, like, his crimes, may he be Ivan the Terrible or just a murderer of 30,000 people in yeah. Sobivo and Majdanek and others, I mean, this is so out of the spectrum. This is just an evil that we can't even imagine. I mean, you know, I was watching just with fascination um, OJ Made in America. <laughs> and OJ Simpson, um, allegedly or not allegedly, I don't know what the final court verdict was. No, not allegedly. He murdered two people. Two. Right. John Demianiuk, in the best case scenario, murdered around 30,000 people. Um, So does it matter? No, it doesn't. What does matter is the survivors. Because these survivors, you have to understand, are not just people who, you know, survived the Holocaust and one day it was over and then they were liberated. These are people that were in Treblinka. Um, Treblinka was a place in which people were executed and, you know, really reduced to dust um, in a matter of hours. 
Nobody was living there. Nobody, you know, had like, you know, these barracks and people talk about what your dream is after the war. No, people would arrive and within six hours there would be dust. And the people that survived, the people who were walking there, And had to collaborate with the Nazis not in a violent way but like you know take care of the getting rid of the bodies and doing all these awful jobs I'm sure they would prefer to be shot than to do and the war was you know proceeding and they understood that like soon they will be next and they decided to revolt and they had this very very courageous mutiny and In which many of them died, but I think something like a hundred and twenty um survived that mutiny. They you know shot the Nazis, the Ukrainian guards, and escaped um and burning down um this you know factory of death and then it was a hundred and twenty people, and they had still a few years of war to survive, right. so only seventy of them survived the war. And during their period in Treblinka, um, the Nazis told them, like, you, even if you will survive, like, you know, go tell anybody, nobody will ever believe you. And, you know, it, it is very hard to believe these stories because it's so horrific and so hideous. And it's almost, you know, going into the realm of mythology, you know, yeah. about this pure evil. And these people... you know, miraculously survived 70 people out of 1 million people. And they went to court and they told their story. And in the end of the day, nobody believed them. Because it doesn't matter if John Demjanjuk was in Sobibor or he was in Treblinka. It matters that the judges in the end of the day told these people, all of you are either mistaken or you are flat out liars. I know it's it's painful um I'm glad you brought all of this up because one of the things that really struck me and and so many people who watched it was that you know it's incredibly graphic it's it, not just in the testimony but in the pictures and the video and I have to admit it's been a long time since I saw a Holocaust movie you know and 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 obviously I grew up learning about it um and it's incredibly uh important it's very painful to watch I mean it was really hard to watch and I think you know some people like oh it was too upsetting I couldn't watch it and I was like no you need you have to watch it and you know I, I'm sure as filmmakers you had to make decisions about you know we're gonna sanitize this so that it's not so hard for people to take or are we going to show the reality and and just with no you know no sen- no sheen on it I mean it was it was just in your face and I think that I applaud you because I think that's the way it had to be was that something that you talked about a lot in the edit yeah so actually it, it was a process I mean for us it started very very clearly you know like 100 we're going to have zero Holocaust footage oh, in the show Wow we didn't want any like for us you know listening to these testimonies, And these testimonies, you know, you got just a glimpse of them, but they're, they're horrific, It's really, really horrific. And they're even more horrific than what you hear in the show. Um, but like I, you said, it's almost too much that you can't believe it. And that's why pictures and video are, the truth is, is in the pictures. Yeah. So, I mean, for us and, you know, I've done a lot of archive work with them. Um, 
my wife, Molushi, um, which we worked on Censored Voices together that she directed and we directed together the Oslo Diaries. And for us, like archives are always something very, very passionate and we love them. Um, but also archives are an illusion. You have to remember or always like who shot the archive? What was his agenda? Now, when you look at Holocaust footage, It was not shot by a documentary crew. It was not like, you know, News 5 covering the Holocaust. <laughs> right. It was shot by the Nazis for propaganda, you know, needs. And that's why, you know, when you need to show propaganda, you need to show, you know, just thousands and thousands of Jews herded onto a, um, a train. You never see what happens inside the train. You never get any close-ups. You never get the eyes of people. You never get a girl like, you know, clinging the hand of her father or being torn away from her mother. You get just this very, very sterile, almost like you would do a documentary about cows being herded to the slaughter. It's the same process of like, you don't see like, you know, the eyes of the cow. You see like, you know, cattle. And... For me, always like this footage was very, very, very disturbing because, you know, it's not what happened there and it's not the emotions of what happened there. And it's almost like for us Israelis that saw so many um, of these, you know, different documentaries that all have the same footage from the same Nazis documenting the same train. Um, it doesn't do much like to my gut. Like when I see, you know, that endless shot of a helicopter going over Auschwitz and you see the barracks, that doesn't really convey the horror. No, but seeing skeletons piled up. Yeah. I so, mean, that, that so conveys... I'm, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm coming there. Okay, I was so, going to say, yeah, what? So for us, um, what we said is we don't want any footage. We just want people to hear the voices And we don't want to try to illustrate it because illustrating it will just like downtone it. And when we were pitching it to Netflix, for us, it was always like we're going for the same language of Mindhunter. Like just listen to it and you can visualize it. As we were working on the show and like, you know, the editing was proceeding, uh, we started to understand that in Europe, but definitely in the U.S., Nobody knows anything about the Holocaust. Um, you know, it was, we saw these statistics of like, you know, from a few years back, like one third of 50% of like millennials have no idea what was the Holocaust, what is Auschwitz. I think like even today, it's like 60% of people have no idea how many people were died in the Holocaust. And people have just like no perception of what is a genocide and what is the difference between a genocide and just a war. Um, and we slowly understood that like, you know, we are talking about Treblinka and Majdanek and Auschwitz and basically, you know, nobody knows what we are talking about. And then we decided, okay, so we have to educate in, you know, in brackets, yeah. um, the audience a bit about what was going on. But if we are going to visualize, we are going to show the horror. And this horror is footage um, that was shot right after the liberation of these death camps and concentration camps. 
um, by British and American um, cinematographers that came and just documented this horror. And that was not documented by Nazis. That was documented by the Allies. And they showed something that was very, very raw and very, you know, it was basically the opposite of these sterile, you know, mm-hmm. people going on trains. And it was so hideous that we said like, okay, this, this almost, almost conveys um, what these testimonies were talking about. Um, and we didn't want in any way to downtone these testimonies, but just to say, okay, if he's, you know, basically describing a living hell, that's what a living hell looks like. Yeah, it was very effective. I'm curious, you know, just as from the producing point of view, what the process was, you know, you guys knew that you had access to the archival, you got the players on board, you know, who were still living, the judge, the two of the three judges and the prosecutors and, and Yoram Shaftel, is that his name? Um, then what, then did you go to Netflix? Like how did it, how did it work? So it started out as, um, an Israeli show, um, with Yes Studios. Oh yeah. Uh, and we set out as an Israeli production. Um, and, and they were going to fund it. Yeah. They, they, they funded it and we knew that it's going to be like this co-production because we got like a lot of, um, uh, a lot of attention right away. Um, and then we started collaborating with uh, Submarine, um, Submarine Entertainment, which are Josh Ben and Dan Brown. And they're uh, from Wild Country. Yeah, they're, they're just amazing. And they basically became our American family. Yeah. Like we so you reached out to them, them or how did, how did that Marriage yeah, so, uh, so we clicked um, and started working together and together we approached Netflix. It was just like in the initial stages of shooting. Um, and then we had this great connection with Netflix and, you know, the rest is history. And did Netflix dictate how many episodes or was it, you, it will be as many as you need and that was kind of how it shook out? Oh, we started out as a four episode and then we, you know, very quickly said like, oh, we need another one. And, you know, we sent Netflix the script for episode five and they'd say, oh yeah, definitely. Let's do it. So there was some, you know, brouhaha for lack of a better word, um, after it came out in Poland, because Poland, can you talk a little bit about what that was about? Yeah, um, it's it's kind of a funny story from an Israeli perspective. <laughs> I think it's less a funny story for Polish people. Um, <laughs> like, you know, when we brought out the show, we were very concerned about like, you know, how uh, Israel is going to react, how uh, Americans going to react. Like this show is basically blaming America for harboring Nazis after the war. It's blaming Israel for either creating a terrible mistrial or for setting free a monster. Um, And like, you know, and then you have the Ukrainians, which are being blamed for, you know, taking their part in being these very brutal collaborators. It actually had nothing to do with Poland. So uh, you can imagine our surprise, like after the show came out and we had the prime minister of Poland threatening to sue us. Um, So that was, you know... Because of how the map was drawn, was that his concern that made it seem like it was Poland had the death camps, not the Nazis? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, me looking at it, like at first it it looked ridiculous. Like, you know, obviously the death camps... 
and the concentration camps were in Poland, like, you know, what's to argue about. Um, but, you know, as I learned as the weeks went by, um, it's actually a more disturbing topic because um, Polish people are um, basically traumatized by the fact that they got a lot of blame uh, that they didn't deserve. I mean, unlike other countries which were very obviously occupied uh, during uh, the Second World War, uh, they got kind of the stigma glued to them saying, you know, oh, you guys collaborated. And then as the years went by, um, it started to grow this question of like, you know, where are these Polish death camps or where are these German death camps? And for them, it was very, very important to clarify that, no, they were not German. They were not Polish death camps. They were run by German Nazis. Like for us as Israelis, as Jews, you know, it's totally obvious. But for them, it was like, you know, just the biggest, biggest shame of like, how could you say about us that these were our death camps? Did you have to change it? That, that was the request that you go back in and clarify it, right? Yeah, so we added a clarification stating that these are German, uh, uh, German Nazi death camps in World War II in Poland. Um, and everybody's happy because on the one hand, we can show that, yes, this is a geography. It was in Poland. It was on Polish soil. And on the second hand, or in parallel, we can show that, yes, but they were run by German Nazis. Um, and, you know, this, this whole historic uh, clarification, I think it's important. I mean, you know, as the years go by and you have fake news just, you know, erupting everywhere, um, you need to clarify things that, you know, once you didn't need to, like saying that there was a Holocaust or that the earth is not flat. So <laughs> I guess, you know, that you can't be clear enough. Well, that's a great point, because I do think it has so much resonance for that exact reason, which is that, you know, we have these Holocaust deniers that have come back into fashion. And it's it's just beyond me that that exists. But things like this that put things on the record that will live forever are really important, you know, historical, um, truth with evidence. So, um, you did an incredible job, I guess, to wrap up. I, my last question is what's the most important thing you want people to take away from the series? I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I don't really have an answer. Um, I mean, the whole show is about not having answers. Um, and it's not like, you know, I want people to finish the show and, you know, go fight a, a fight. Um, for me, really, you know, it's one of these sentences that Dahlia Donner, Judge Dahlia Donner, um, told us. And, you know, it didn't make its way into the show. But she said, like, you know, what is the message of all this, you know, of all these, like, you know, 20 years of this case, of all these stories, horrifying story. And for her, it's really, it comes down to, you know, don't do to others what was done to you. And for her, she says, you know, looking at all this misery on all sides, you know, the misery of the survivors and the miseries of the ones who were lost and just this horrifying story of the Holocaust. We need to be aware um, of all wrongdoings all over. 
um, and we must do our best not to take part in them, uh, be it, you know, as opportunistic collaborators, you know, <laughs> as people or as countries. I think that's a really good message and we need it now as well. So thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your work. Thank you to you and Yossi for a beautiful, important series that meant, meant a lot to me and a lot of people. And um, I hope everyone will watch it because it's really, really important. Thanks so much for having me. 